Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley, Bridgeway's Director of Connections, and today my co-host, Pastor Lance Hahn, and I are joined by P.C. Walker, author of the book Beneath Broken Machines, Reviving Trust in the Heart of the Gospel. We're going to be discussing how to have an honest life of faith. We're all prone to wear masks, settle for easy answers, and avoid that which is challenging or painful. But true freedom is not found in those things. How do we get beyond religious performance and live honest, authentic, transformational lives of faith? This question and more on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Engaging Culture Podcast. I am Brian Kiley, joined, as usual, by Pastor Lance Hahn. Pastor Lance, how are you? I am wonderful. It is super good to be here. All right. Good, good, good. And we also have the privilege of being joined by author, pastor, poet, Cubs fan, Mm. PC Walker. PC, Mm. good to have you with us. Thanks Thanks. for being here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So I learned something. So PC, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, wrote a book, Beneath Broken Machines, and we're going to get to that in a second. I learned something in the book that you and I have in common, Uh and that is our mutual hatred of the University of Southern California. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it makes things come up inside my mouth. It, when me I too. Hear that. I yeah. understand. So you're a Notre Dame guy. Yes. I'm not a Notre Dame guy. Okay. I'm a UCLA guy. Right. But my enemy's enemy is my friend. So exactly right. You can exactly be my right. friend. As long as you're playing against USC, then you are my second favorite team. There you go. Yes. Amen. We can definitely agree on that. My favorite thing about this conversation is that we have interns from USC here well, at the church. I'm just pointing that out. My wife also has a master's degree from USC, but uh, we don't talk about that. Her mm. undergrad is from UCLA, and that's what's important. But, that's you true. Know, we're people of grace here, and uh, that stretches the limit of our grace, but... Still, anyway. So, PC, Beneath Broken Machines. Um, really enjoyed the book. Uh, loved kind of the heart behind it in, in so many different respects. Kind of the, the, the push towards, I mean, we're talking about honest, honest faith today. And, and, and mm-hmm. we're so prone to, you know, just wear different masks and, and all of this. And the metaphor you use for some of that is this concept of a machine. So, so yeah. what do you mean by a broken machine? Talk, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, the concept of the book and the machine itself is that we like to make faith into uh, like a good, well-oiled machine. And, you know, we've heard it said before, like I am our staff runs like a well-oiled machine or our our team runs like a well-oiled machine. But I've heard it become kind of this idea that uh, my faith runs like a well-oiled machine in that. We think that if I put in all of the right efforts and all of the right time and all of the right checks and balances on my faith, then I should get out of it like a good machine. I should get out of it at certain things. And what the trouble with a machine is, is that it doesn't have a heart. And um, the other one is that it breaks. (laughs) Machines break. (laughs) And uh, I, I tell the example in the introduction about how I'm just not a handy person. I'm not a handy person and like Amen. if yes and if machines <laughs> break in my house like i have to decide in in the moment like is can i fix this or should i just throw it away <laughs> because i'm not going to be able to fix it um and what i find is uh, i've sat as a being a pastor for a long time sitting alongside a lot of people whose machines that they put in all their right efforts and then they broke because life happens and Things happen in life that we don't expect or get to control. And then when the, the machine breaks, mm-hmm. um, 
they start to ask that question of, well, what else did God want from me? I did everything right. I did all that I was supposed to do, and yet this still broke. Um, and then when that machine that I built the whole time breaks, all the pieces fall away. You start to see that there was a heart the whole time that beat for you underneath. Right. Yeah. right. Lance, why does the machine concept appeal to us so much? Uh, control. I, I think that with machine pieces, you look and everything's clear and obvious. And so you so if I put it all together, mm-hmm. this is supposed to work. And I think so much of our life is really about um, wanting control. Uh, and what I, what I think that all three of us have in common in a really, really significant way is that we see the world in shades of gray mm-hmm. and that we're okay with messiness. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is the natural, I think we had to be discipled into that way. I think that the more and more we look at Jesus, now granted, some of us are more poetic and more feelers than others. I think that you're probably more of a feeler than I am, so it comes easier to you. But I was trained into it by Jesus, Mm. where when I studied scripture, messiness and layers and everything was forced my way where he had to keep waking me up. And I think that was kind of the really the heart of your book, right? Which yeah. you, we keep looking for control of one little piece. And if I put all these in order, ta-da, I think machines are about control. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Machines are about control and about kind of clear expectations. Which yeah. I guess is the same way of, of saying that. I, I think that we are... We're drawn to systems in different ways, yes. and that's not mm-hmm. always bad. Mm-hmm. I, I like the fact that when I get into the car and I press down on the pedal on the right, that the car goes forward. Sure. I like that I can expect that. I, there are areas in my life where I really would prefer to avoid messiness. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Anytime uh, someone asks me how uh, uh, a drive or a flight went, I, I like to right. say uneventful. <laughs> and that to Amen. me, that to me is the best. Which possible. is a great flight, right? Exactly. Yes. That to me is the best possible answer. Uh, but when we start to bring this into a life of faith, we 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 want to bring that sense of systemization mm-hmm. into. Well, if I check all these boxes, life is going to go great for me. N- never mind the fact that oftentimes we're not really sure what that even means. Like, right. what is what is a life that is so great? And and I guess. From a pastoral perspective, I find that so dangerous because of exactly what you guys have have been describing, this idea of, okay, well, what do I do when the machine breaks? Because to me, when the machine breaks, we realize we have to kind of, we're laid bare and we have to realize the state of our hearts in the first place. Like, Mm -hmm. what was this really all all about? Can you maybe speak to that a little bit? Like, Mm -hmm. what what do we learn about our hearts if we're people that kind of make our faith into a machine? What do we learn about our hearts when the machine we've created breaks? Yeah, I think we learn. Um, I, I, I love the fact that the idea, is, especially with the metaphor, the idea is that the heart was always there. The heart always beat for you um, and never stopped beating. And I, I like to say that God never stops calling your name. And even the whole time that we were building that machine and trying to control everything, because I think that that is absolutely what it comes down to is, we try to control life in all cases. We're trying mm-hmm. to control uh, everything. I wish I could control my relationships. Like if I could control the way my family responds to me, they would they would love me. You know, like <laughs> they would love how our relationship worked if they just did everything I wanted. Uh, I would love to control uh, my body. Even you know, I can work really hard to make it better, but I can't control it. Because um, if I could control our body, things like cancer wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And um, 
but I just don't get to. And then the trouble is the tension that comes with, I'm trying to control something I just don't get to control. Right. And, uh, and then when it all breaks, what reveals to us is I think we learn that the whole time you were doing all of that, the whole time you were tirelessly building that, that machine, the heart still beat for you. And that the entire time God never stopped calling your name and it's still available now. Let me ask a quick clarifying question. When mm-hmm. you say the heart was beating for you, you don't mean your heart. You right. mean the Lord's heart, right? Right. Sure. So the whole time his heart was beating. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, the Another, just kind of a, an introductory question so we can kind of get on the same page. Um, who was your audience for this book? Who were you writing to? Because mm-hmm. when you write, you have to picture Absolutely. someone. And usually that is... Um, for pastors, a lot of times that's a, a heart of compassion that you have for a particular group of people, mm-hmm. and you're saying, I wish so badly you could hear my heart on this. Absolutely. Right? And that, I had two, I would say two people that kept popping into my mind, and, and actually in my specific head there were two specific people, uh, but those two specific people represent yes. the groups and the audience. Um, I had written this book for one group of people who are have been followers of Jesus for a long time and everything broke um, and have found themselves in that place of asking that same question, what else did God want? I did everything I was supposed to do. That, mm-hmm. that has been a statement that I've heard many times mm-hmm. um, in my office sitting with people who are sitting along all their fragmented pieces and asking me, what am I supposed to do? I did all the stuff that I was supposed to do. And so this was written to that group to say, man, you missed the heartbeat for you. You missed the engaging of a relationship that was there the whole time. Um, and of course, everything else that you built fell apart. But man, this is still good. <laughs> you know, like yeah. this is what it's, it has been revealed. Yeah. The other group is uh, a group of people who have never either... Have, have either never heard that God loves them like this and has no, has no understanding of believing that. Uh, I want them to see that heart that we're talking about, um, the heart that is revealed to the believer who has been following Jesus but build up a machine around it. That heart is still there. But then to say to that person, actually, there's a heart over here that, that is a heart that God has for you and he will not stop calling your name. And if you want to engage that, it is available to you. Um, stepping out of the brokenness that never even got maybe put together. So there's those two kind of groups of people. It's written to the person who is broken, um, and recognizes their brokenness. I, I, I'm stealing your job. Pastor Brian, Go I'm ahead. very sorry. Go ahead. You're I'm good, very man. Sorry. Um, but another clarifying question. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, it says beneath broken machines, and we're using a bunch of different analogies. So let me ask you this. Is it broken in terms of something went wrong, mm-hmm. or is it a design flaw? Uh, hmm. Meaning it was built in. Here's what, here's what my point is. Yeah. Um, God said it is not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. But sin hadn't entered the world. There was no disruption yet. It was a designed-in mm-hmm. lack, a design-in um, something that was going to break down. If this is not like a car is built to need oil, right? Right. Right. So if oil is not put into it, it will break down. Mm-hmm. But that is actually a lack that's built in. And and the reason why I'm asking you this is because 
uh, need is a bonding agent. Okay, so like with little babies, when mm-hmm. little babies are nursing with their moms or held close to their moms, it becomes a bonding. The only reason they're close is because they need them. Yeah, right. Sure. When there's independence and health and mm-hmm. strength, there's separation. We find that with an empty nest syndrome, where somebody has gone out and made their way in the world. Mm-hmm. But as little babies, there's such a need. Well, the need's not wrong. It's part of the design. And so for you, as you reflect on that concept, are these things that God built into us for our, we were always going to collapse in that place Mm -hmm. because he was always going to rescue. He was always going to lift up. Is that what you mean? Or are you saying that as you're going along, sometimes just being in a bad world breaks stuff? And it's not a good thing. It was not a design of God. It's just bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Which, which do you think you were leaning towards? I was certainly leaning towards the idea that stuff happens in our life and that puts us in a broken state. Okay. Um, I, I use the example, uh, I I have always wanted a Volkswagen van again. Like that <laughs> is, it's still a dream uh, of mine. And uh, which, which proposes some problems with me being not a handy person. But I do know that um, when my father-in-law, when he first found out that I wanted one, he said, that's great. You understand if you buy a Volkswagen, you are buying a project. And if that is understood, then I can tell you the tools you're going to need to keep in your van at all times for when it breaks down. And that has been like a perfect picture of what kind of drove my understanding of the broken machine is that life is going to happen and things that we don't control will fall apart. And that is where the brokenness is. I think realizing that, um, no, I don't think it's a design flaw as far as what God has put together. That doesn't break. Um, but things happen in our life that completely break down the machines that we built. Because we have to remember, in the, at least in the metaphor, I am building that machine. This is not God's machine. Um, his heart beats for us, and we build a machine around it, thinking that we are making our faith work. And so That's life so happens helpful. outside of it. Yeah. yeah. So Man, that what a beautiful be clarification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think it's so so interesting, and I thought this a lot as I was reading the book these last few days, is... You, know, you talk about kind of a life of faith being the machine, and I hesitate to say that faith is meant to be more the tools than the machine, because I don't think the point of faith, the point of faith is not to like get our machine running like awesome, Yeah. but the point, I mean, our, our faith is sort of what's meant to be there when the machine breaks. Like, mm. faith is not the machine itself, right. and, and I think what's behind the question of I did everything I was supposed to do and my machine still broke. Mm. On the one hand, I have a lot of empathy for that question because that's from a place of severe brokenness. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's from a place of misplaced expectation as well, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That there's this idea of, well, no, no, no. The, The point of walking with Jesus, the point of recognizing that his heart beats for you is not so that you can have this killer machine that never breaks. Mm. It's so that when your machine breaks, there's something there to, there to catch you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that's the, that's the component that we miss. And I think pastorally, and even just, I think about as a parent, I think about anybody who I have the opportunity to influence in a life of faith. Like the last thing I ever want to communicate is this kind of formulaic, well, just do these things and 
you won't get sick. You'll never have financial problems. You'll never lose your mm-hmm. job. All your relationships will be great because that's just not how life works on sure. this side of yeah. this side of eternity. So I feel like there's a responsibility we have to train people up to deal with the broken machine and to realize as we pursue Jesus, we're not pursuing some sort of earthly perfection. We're, we're pursuing the one who walks with us in the midst of our our brokenness. Does that make sense? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's something to be engaged as opposed to controlled. I think that the idea of using this understanding of control being really what we're trying to do, uh, it gets also the expectations that you're speaking of because we have certain expect when we are trying to control things, we have an expectation of how that ought to be returned to us and everything should go correctly if I do it right. Um, it, I mean, when you're operating a machine, you always have the joke of being, well, is that, uh, you know, operation error or is that, <laughs> or is that a broken machine? Um, right. And most of the time when we are building our faith like that, we are, we are, we have expectations. We're putting in expectation into the machine and having a certain thing that we <sighs> want to see a return on. And then that doesn't come out the way it's supposed to come out. And, um, and realizing that the whole time what actually needed to happen was instead of controlling, we wanted to engage something. There's something here to be encountered. There's something to be engaged and interacted with in that heartbeat. And, uh, and that doesn't always happen. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that um, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm. And I think when he said that, there's a certain degree to where he was saying, hey, guys, I've done all the heavy lifting. Mm. I'm the one carrying you. I'm, mm. I'm your lifeblood. You don't need to build a machine to carry weight I never asked you to carry. Yeah, It's like you're building a truck to carry a bunch of stuff that's a religious system. Mm. I didn't build that for you. Right. If you're going to roll with me, I actually am the one that I started it, mm. I sustain it, I'm going to end it, I'm going to glorify it. Mm. And... and and it's it's that he goes, why do you keep adding what I didn't ask you to add? Mm. It's just, there should be a lightness to you because it's my heart, not yours. Yeah. Oh, well, I love that because then there's what you hear you hear those types of passages and you hear those statements of Jesus, especially that one, like my burden is light and my yoke is easy, and you hear that at first glance and you think, oh, that sounds so great, and then we realize why is it not like, why does it not feel like that? And why am I not getting that thing that sounds so wonderful? And it's, it's interesting because I think we hear that that's the case. And then we keep working for things that have already been provided and things that are available. But we also, that's a thing that is hard for us because we don't feel like we deserve it. And, that's again another that's a whole other reason why we build our machines too is we we live in a culture that you know we hear phrases like you earn what you get and you you know you made your bed not lie in it and all of these things that you hear and those things all work like in the silicon valley but mm-hmm. they don't work in the gospel and mm-hmm. um, that's not how the gospel is set up and yet that's how we start to operate and think well if i just do enough things i could earn that rest and that, that easy yoke, you know, and it's like, no, that's not, that's not what we're trying to do here. You don't need to work so hard for something that's already been provided to you, uh, for you to engage and to take up. And, uh, and it's an interesting, there's so many of those things that when Jesus says them, 
it, they just sound so great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, I would love that. And it's almost like you can, you can have that. Like that's, <laughs> that's why I said it. Right, so that, right. that kind of stuff is really interesting to me because we, we, we resist the good stuff. Like we resist the good stuff in our, just our constant effort. And we're just flailing around trying to do a lot of things and mm-hmm. that we're missing it in those times. I mean, with the control element that, that Lance, you spoke of earlier, that, that speaks to our, our inability to kind of free ourselves from our love for our machine yeah. <laughs> to embrace a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff that, that Jesus talks about. I, I loved what you said in the book, the kind of the juxtaposing the, the make your bed now lay in it. Whereas Jesus says, you know, take up your mat and walk yeah. kind of a thing like yeah. that to me was a very yeah, powerful, powerful. Mm-hmm. analogy. And, and it speaks to, again, there, there is this sense in which we're comfortable with the systemization. Whereas Jesus, Jesus says, well, if you'll trust me, I'm willing to bust up your systemization and <laughs> and and there's going to be some some challenge to that but there's there's beauty in it as well. There's get up and walk. Don't yeah. just lay here. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Now, as we're continuing to move forward talking about kind of an honest life of faith which requires on some level some abandonment of of the machine. I want to talk about sin for a little bit, because mm-hmm. who doesn't love talking about that? <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> Lance loves to talk about sin, as long as it's other people's, right? Yes, right, amen. Right. That, that, that is my preference, too. <laughs> so uh, there's something that you say that I think is really powerful. You talk about the idea of an imposter mm-hmm. and how as long as an imposter exists within us, it threatens our ability to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for us. Mm. And you say that, that your imposter has no problem confessing sin in general. Yeah. Right. So you're, I am a sinner. None of us would, would deny that, you know, hopefully, but you say that your imposter can confess he is a sinner all day long and he knows he is forgiven, but the question has to be asked forgiven for what? And, and you talk about this, this idea that the pretend, that the imposter is good with kind of sin in general, mm-hmm. but is very uncomfortable with sin in particular. The idea yeah. of that level mm-hmm. of, of kind of radical, uh, yeah, radical deep. honesty. Why, why are we so much more comfortable with the imposter, first of all? And then second of all, what do we lose by our inability to, to confess sin in general and to be, or excuse me, confess sin specifically and just yeah. be honest about that? Yeah, well... I, I don't think we're uncomfortable with the imposter. The imposter keeps us very comfortable, um, allows us to be comfortable. Uh, but the I think we resist spe- speaking specifically about our sin um, and giving it a name, giving it something that makes us look at it. Um, because, again, it, it's like that idea where I can confess sin generally all day long because we can all do that. Um, we can all say that. I mean, that's just good theology and I can recite it and say, you know, I'm a sinner forgiven. Um, but then to go and say, but forgiven for what? And, um, and what is it that you're actually confessing? It requires me to actually lay something down. Um, it actually requires a sacrifice of something specific that I have to put before Jesus and say, I need forgiveness for this. Um, I need something because this is the thing that's actually uh, attacking me. This is the thing that's eating me from the inside out. Um, and if I don't lay something specific in front of Jesus and need that rescue, need that forgiveness for that thing that is specific, I could just say, I'm just, I'm just a sinner and I need, I need forgiveness. Um, and 
then I never actually have to do any of the work of the things that are there. It's like trying to make forgiveness the magic wand that's just going to make it better, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. because there's still something internally that needs to be worked through um, and allow Jesus to actually take hold of that specific thing. But man, that's hard. That's really hard because um, it makes us look at something um, that actually is 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 hurting and destroying us, but we don't pay, want to pay attention to that specific thing. Um, that, that I think that's why it's hard, at least. Yeah. That's why it's difficult. Yeah. So then, Lance, going over to you, what? I mean, I think we can all relate to that. I am very comfortable with confessing sin in general, but even uh, you know, I think about my own life and how it's like I sort of have to be uh, I kind of have to space out my confession a little bit because if I get <laughs> too specific uh, too often that becomes a little hard for even, even for me to, to, to deal with you know mm-hmm. and having to kind of confront those things about myself I'm not proud of what's lost for us when we fail to do that I think when you're in essence you're living a lie right I mean mm-hmm. you're pretending mm-hmm. something that's actually not true um, you live in the conceptual, not the action, right? So, yeah. so yeah. you're a hearer of the word, you're not a doer of the word. Mm-hmm. As long as you do that, you can run and pretend. Um, I remember hearing, and maybe I've shared it here before, but uh, there was a book called True Faced mm-hmm. um, that was out a long time ago. And one, I'll never forget this. It said, when you wear a mask, the problem is you can't feel love through a mask mm-hmm. because it's not the real you. So if somebody loves you, you don't get to have it because they love the mask that you're wearing and you know it's not for you. Mm-hmm. It's not for the real you. And so that that mask shuts off your ability to feel love, feel affirmation, feel mm-hmm. approval. It's only once that mask is removed can you really start to soak it in and it sticks to you. Um, and I, I think that in order to do that, and, and once again, maybe I've shared it here, but Hey, maybe somebody maybe needs not. to hear who, something who else knows? again. Let me just, I don't know what I say, Brian, and I don't know what I don't say. But but um, I another thing that was very, very helpful for me was that I remember doing some study in premarital counseling stuff, and they were explaining uh, the pathway to intimacy. And they explained there's intimacy, which means unhindered communication and mm-hmm. connection, right? Mm-hmm. Well, inevitably, intimacy is disrupted by conflict. So you run into conflict. Something's going to happen that that causes a disruption in the relationship. You have two choices at that point. You either can heal it and go back to intimacy, or you slide into withdrawal, right? right? So that's Mm -hmm. the other side. Mm -hmm. The aha point about this is the only way back to intimacy from withdrawal is through the pathway of conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you got to own up to it. And And I don't think that when we have to confess in particular... It's walking into the actual conflict. Mm. It's owning up to it. I think we want to try to go around it. We want to try to ignore it. We want to try to move. And I think that what we lose is we can't get back to intimacy mm. until we do it in particular. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so good. Mm. Uh, I think about our context. Here we are sitting in Roseville, California, sitting in the, in the suburbs mm-hmm. where... There is a, a decent amount of pressure to to look like you have your life together. In different places, uh, th- that level of pressure varies. But mm-hmm. here in in the suburbs in particular, there is, uh, yeah, a lot of the pain is hidden. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, pr- I mean, we see it week in and week out. I feel it even in my own heart as much as I try not to give into it. There's just a lot of pressure 
to make it look like you have you have things together, your life's going great, marriage, kids, everyone's got their hair combed, you know, you have a nice enough car, nobody fought on the way to church, that kind of a thing, job's going good, work-life balance, blah, you know, whatever, I can go on and on. How does that make it? I mean, how, how do we how do we be people who can lean into this rhythm of kind of honesty, being honest about our brokenness, kind of confession and healing in the midst of a culture and a society that makes that very difficult because we are so because I mean, it's not that there's not pain around us. It's that A, it's hidden and mm-hmm. B, we've come re- become really good at numbing it instead of facing it, instead of walking through the, the conflict, so to speak, like like you said. Mm-hmm. How can how can we as Christ followers break that down? in a suburban context where there's so much pressure to look like we have it all together all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to be able to, uh, you have to be able to look at a wound and that, that that's where the pain comes from. I mean, pain is an interesting thing. And one of my favorite books that I've ever read is called the gift of pain, um, by Dr. Paul Brand. He, awesome. uh, Oh, it's so good. And he, he, uh, has a leprosarium that he, uh, runs in India, and um, he the whole book is is story after story about things that he has seen here, and and the disease of leprosy is interesting because we we picture it to be this thing where uh, like all your limbs are falling off and your scaly skin and that type of thing, but the actual disease is a disease of the nerves, uh, so that literally your n- nerves do not operate, so you can't feel it's a dead anything. It's a deadening of the yeah. nerves feeling, so you cannot feel, so you're literally numb. Um, and he, he tells stories of how like patients would reach into a, a fire because they accidentally dropped something into a fire, they reach into the fire just to grab it and walk out, with, pull their hand out with a straight face because they didn't feel it. And what happens is we allow those numb, those things that are broken, those things are wounded, those things are cut. Like if you have a cut on your arm and you just don't pay attention to it and you can't feel that that pain is happening, then that wound gets infected and it begins to grow. And mm-hmm. then that's when things like losing your limbs happen after the infection spreads. And as it applies to our hearts, to our souls, to our other senses of pain, that it's the same way it works, right? We, we, something happens that is painful in our life and we have all different mechanisms for numbing that away. And it might be any of our addictive things that we have that help us not feel it for that moment. And then when we don't pay attention to the wound, something is wrong. Pain has been given to us. Like God has given us pain and wired us with pain on purpose mm-hmm. because pain says something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Fix this thing. Uh, but when I don't feel pain, which we, especially in the suburb, especially in an American culture where the painkiller business is like multi-billion dollar a year business, we just don't want to feel that. And when we don't feel it, we're not paying attention to the thing that's been wounded, the thing that's been stuck. And so the longer we keep not feeling and refusing to pay attention to this pain that is a warning system God wired us with, we're missing the wound and the wound continues to grow worse and worse. Um, So we get to it by saying, oh my my gosh, I hurt. Uh, This pain is is large. Mm -hmm. Why am I in pain. What mm-hmm. is broken? What is cut? What is wounded? Um, and I need to address that. But that's that's not easy to do because we just don't want to feel pain. And that's, if we get to the point where we start to realize and focus our pain and go to the point where when I'm in pain, that's a warning. There's something going on mm-hmm. and I need 
I need healing in those places and I can go after that. But it's hard in the, in the suburbs where it's like, I just don't want to feel pain. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to feel pain. And, um, and well, well I'll pretend that I don't, (laughs) or I'll go find whatever addictive thing I can to make me not feel pain for a few minutes. And then that continues to grow. Yeah. Just on that same line, talking about, you know, the suburbs versus the, the urban. Now I'm going to be super stereotypical. What what I'm about to say, obviously that's kind of what we're talking about. Right. So I apologize if I'm offending somebody, but I'm used to it. Um, so here's what I was thinking. I was thinking the suburban wealthy versus the urban poor. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking is one tends to struggle with anxiety and one tends to struggle with fear. In other words, um, what I've found is in the suburbs, there's a ton of anxiety because you have things at a certain level, and it's not a true danger, but you're afraid of losing image. And what that does, it causes a lot of anxiety, anxiousness mm-hmm. of going, something's going to go wrong in my machine. Something's going to derail me. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you don't have the money to build it, mm-hmm. and you don't have the ability to make it shiny, you actually deal with a more raw feeling, which is I either have fear that I'm not going to eat, mm-hmm. I either have fear that I'm going to get beat up, or I don't. I don't have anything that I'm building. I, I don't have any money to build it. I don't have any options to build something fake to mm-hmm. worry about. Mm-hmm. I, I have real fear in my life. Well, I think in the same way, both groups desire to numb out. We have drug issues in both. Oh, sure. Um, what's intriguing, and you'll see that even in urban poor they will give their last dollars to numb out. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have a whole lot of anything, but you will use your only dollars you have yeah. to numb out. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the wealthy, you tend to have more access to numb out without it ultimately upsetting everything that you have. Mm-hmm. So you're able to carry it on longer without an obvious visual damage, right? Um, if you're if you're out on the street and you're a, a crank addict, mm-hmm. it, it becomes very obvious. If you're a pharmaceutical addict and you live behind a gated community, mm-hmm. uh, it's not visual. Yeah. Nobody knows to call you sure. on it. Yeah. Um, but the idea of one is struggling to survive, the other one's struggling to keep up image. And, and yeah. so I just think that there's very, very different worlds. That would be the, that, that last statement is probably having been working working currently in the suburbs and having a long history of working with the urban poor, I, there, I would, I would tag the, uh, tag both of them being fear. Anxiety is fear living in a fear of losing everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's still a fear. Whereas the survival is what you find, um, when over and over again in the urban poor and survival living in a survival mode, puts you into a lot of circumstances where you will constantly, you're just trying to survive until the next day. And yes. so there's no planning ahead. There's no, no long term. Uh, there's no long term. You can't see long term um, because then you're just dreaming about something that you're never going to get. Um, but when you are in, in the, in a poor situation when everything has already been stripped of you, you operate in, in a survival where survival will do terrible things to you Crazy and the way stuff. that you live your life, uh, even to the point where if you find ways to get out of, uh, poverty or you find ways that you there, that survival does an impact on you where I have walked through life with people coming out of poverty and then in a transition program and 
the significant part of their first part of their program is saying you don't have to live in survival anymore, but that's just how we operate. Well, you got uh, to be wired for that. Yeah, right? you 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 learn real quick to do that. Right. Yeah. It's amazing to me. I mean, different contexts, socioeconomics and all of that stuff, just so many of the issues are similar. Mm-hmm. And and I almost wonder what you're describing with somebody in a um, in survival mode who needs to learn to not live in survival mode. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if there's another side of that where we say, okay, maybe in the in the suburbs it's not it's either not survival mode or it's survival mode that's different. It's not really your physical survival. It's more kind of your emotional survival in, in, sure. in some ways. That there is this need to learn to live in a dip with a different mindset mm. to learn to live not in a sense of i just need to numb out all the time uh, but i can actually be honest and i can be real about who i am and i can face this pain mm. god being with me and that's that doesn't mean the pain's not going to be real but it means the pain doesn't need to be devastating the pain doesn't need to be something that i numb out from because mm. that's not ultimately what's causing my pain is not my identity that my identity is more rooted in in Christ. Now, mm-hmm. as we look to these, I mean, these different types of, of issues that, that have come up, whether it's survival, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, hopelessness, and all of these different things. In the book, PC, you talk about how, for a lot of us, we face these emotions because our God is too small. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, I think we make statements. I think we are comfortable talking about how we think God is so big, and we allow him to, we like to use words that define it as being so big. And then when things happen like this, uh, when things happen around our life, you realize the God that you've always related to might not be as big as you thought. Uh, Because if he were, if he were as big as you've always described, um, you would not be as hopeless as you are. You would not be be as broken um, in your perception of him as you are now because um, God would be big enough to do this. And we, you know, we can sing a song on a Sunday and give him praise for how great he is and how big he is. And then when things happen in our life, we wonder where he is and what happened. And and then it puts a challenge on, um, is your God so... Uh, big, or is he really actually the God that you relate to just is too small to handle the things you've, that, that you're going through. Um, and that is what I mean by him being too small. When, when the God that you are trying to interact with now just doesn't seem to be capable of interacting with the things that you're going through, then, then the God that you're talking about is too small for me. Um, because the God that I know is, is, is large enough to handle that and is capable enough to meet me in those places and take care of that and to shepherd me through and to walk me through with and through and with. Um, and, and if, if he's not capable of that, if, if the God that you relate to is not capable of handling the things you're talking about, then first of all, it's not the God that of scripture, um, that we know, Mm -hmm. but, the God that you are talking about is not big enough um, and is not capable. So wonder which God it is that you're actually relating to. Okay. So let's put this down kind of on a street level. Lance, we talk about the idea of, okay, if if your God is too small, when the machine breaks, so to speak, getting back to what we talked about earlier, when, when the machine breaks, when life seems to not be working out for us, when we feel like we've done all the right things and we're not getting the results, we, we, we wanted our tendency 
if we're relying on the machine too much, our tendency, if our God is too small, is to fall into all of these emotions PC describes in the book. Hopelessness, helplessness, anxiety, fear. What does this look like on a street level? Kind of what's the alternative to all of that? And what does it look like to lean into God as he really is in the midst of our broken machines? And how does that save us from just sort of surrendering to fear and anxiety and all of these different toxic emotions that tend to come after us when our sort of beautiful picturesque life of faith seems to be collapsing a little bit? It's kind of a convoluted question, but go for it. No, 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 no. I hear you. I think um, the very concept of reducing God in our minds to a God that we can control, to buddy Jesus, to this idea of, um, I don't want him to put any expectations on me, so I'm going to shrink him smaller and smaller mm. and smaller. Now he's just an opinion. Now he's just a thought. Mm. Um, I, I think that when we when we do that, um, we start taking um, a part of Jesus. So, for example, we mistake kindness for weakness, right? So, mm. so we grab this Jesus when he was silent before his accusers, and we go, oh, look, he's this humble little guy. And you forget that he's the commander of the army of God in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. We know that in Revelation he comes riding out with like king of kings on his thigh, and he's this warrior king. He's this massive, ferocious person. That's the guy that can slay the dragon. You understand what I'm mm-hmm. saying? That's the guy that can... Well, w- on a practical street level, when we do that kind of stuff, we are picturing that there is a humble, gentle, soft Jesus who can't handle our problems versus one that can. And so it's a matter of perception, right? Because Jesus is Jesus. He is who he is. But our perception is wrong. The Bible talks about exalting God. Well, a lot of that is just lifting him up and magnifying him in your mind, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Magnify the Lord. It means bring him back up bigger, zoom in, right? And go, oh my gosh, he is way bigger. When we have small Jesus then that anxiety creeps in because he's not the God that can shut the mouths of lions. He's not Mm -hmm. the God that walks the Hebrew Mm -hmm. boys through fire. He's not the God that, you understand? And you're stealing all the power out of him and you panic and go, I don't have any help here. I'm completely alone. I need to build a new machine to go help me (laughs) fight the giant that's coming at me because my Jesus is tiny. Mm -hmm. And then you go, so I don't know if that's practical enough for you, but that was kind of the thoughts that came into my head. Well, I mean, I think you're right. That's that is the the mindset that we need because it is sort of funny how how quickly we can go into this like I'm all alone, I need to take control of everything I'm doing mode. And then also how quickly we can just go into complete despair when kind of the life we have built around us is 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 collapsing in some ways or things aren't going aren't going the way we want them to. And this all sounds very negative. This all sounds very like let's prepare for doomsday kind of mm-hmm. a thing. But I, I guess that's not really the the tack I'm trying to take with this. What I'm what I'm trying to to get us towards, I guess, is just this idea that uh what is the ultimately the foundation of your life? And I think it's so interesting. I mean all of us have have either walked through personal tragedy ourselves or have walked other people through it. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible to me to see the way that people deal with challenges and tragedy and how their faith informs that, or really what that what that reveals about their faith. And it's not to say that those who have an adequate picture of God don't grieve or anything. By sure. any, in, in many ways, sure. it is especially intense. But there is this sense of hope in pain, which mm-hmm. those things are not opposite. Right. There is right. a sense of peace in pain, mm-hmm. and, and those things are not—you don't have to pick one, mm-hmm. right? 
And, and to me, that, that is what's so important for us to train ourselves up in, for us as leaders to train others up in, is this idea of, of, a, of a connection with God that can sustain us when the machine breaks. And, and, and it's, just, it's just easy to miss that with kind mm-hmm. of feel-good Christianity yeah. with, with I, I heard it described <laughs> recently as happy, clappy Christianity, which kind of, if that's all it is, right. you know, it doesn't speak to the root issues of our of our hearts, which are which are so important. So well, and that's the thing is, uh, it's not pessimism. I think no, it, I think no. it's healthy honesty. Mm-hmm. And here's why: mm-hmm. if you can really hurt, that means you can have real comfort. Meaning, sure. if you're pretending and you're masking it off and you're ignoring real hurt, you actually have to ignore real comfort. Right. You know what right. I mean? So, so yeah. when we talk about having an honest, transparent, real life, that means Jesus can really help mm-hmm. because He's going, man, I got so much stuff for you. You're you're blocking me. Yeah. Your little mask and your little walls and your machine and everything. Mm-hmm. I can't seem to get through it. So I have like 13 pounds of help for you mm-hmm. waiting right here outside your walls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I just need you to be honest so you can receive my blessings. Mm-hmm. I have so much more. As a matter of fact, if you'd open your walls, I know how to bring victory. Yeah. I know how to bring yeah. comfort. So I, it's certainly not a pessimism. Yeah. But but in order to strip away machine, mask, things like this, it requires a brutal honesty mm-hmm. and living where you're really at, not where you wish you were, right? Sure. Well, you have to get to a point where you are forming the perspective or the perception of, that you have of who God truly is before the pain even comes. Because then when that pain does happen, if your God is big enough and if the God that you understand and that you relate to is the God of Scripture, who is capable of taking taking in your pain and and walking with you in your pain and taking shepherding you in the midst of that pain. If that is the God that you have come to trust, then when pain hits, you can do what you said. I can, I can actually engage my pain because I know God is capable of taking care of it. But what happens is that many of us don't build and understand God to be as, as big as he is and as capable as he is and all of the things that he is able to do. We don't understand that. And then, pain hits mm-hmm. and then we go, well, wait, what, what happened? Like, why, where is God in all of this? And, um, but then the ones, it's funny because when I have had a, I've been, I was in a class in seminary and I remember them, one of the professors asking, um, what, what were some of your experiences of God's goodness? What did they look like? And everybody had an, had a story of when they just knew God's goodness and they experienced God's goodness, but all of the stories were like painful moments and, mm. and destructive moments that had happened. And then I knew, I knew God's presence in that moment and I knew that he was big and I knew that he was good. Um, and it's interesting that the question was just like, how is God good? And tell me a story about it. And then all of the stories are painful moments yeah. when in that moment I knew God was good and I yeah. knew God is as big as I had always believed him to be. Um, and then that gets at the hope. I mean, that's, that's when hope becomes not a wishful thinking, um, but actually has a substance to it. And, and, uh, and that's why some of us lose hope in those moments when God is too small, because um, I I always thought hope was just wishing for good things in the pa- in the future, and right. that's not what hope is. It's just not at all what the <laughs> what the intention of the word is, because the word is like a confident expectation. It yep. is based on what I know God to be, because um, God is big enough, and I know He is big enough. Based on that, when things happen, I have hope. I can I can trust those those fully 
uh, truthful things of who God is and what he will do in these moments. I, I think that when things crash in, um, you um, go on instinct. Instinct mm-hmm. is your default to what you've prior prepped. Right? Yes, right. So that right. so if you did no prep, mm-hmm. then when it kicks to instinct, your instinct will be fear as opposed to faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because there was no prep prior that mm-hmm. now I'm like starting yeah. to rhyme all my stuff. It's because I'm staring at you. <laughs> but um they all start with the same Hold letters. On, I write that down. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um but I, I think that um, it's, you know, the analogy I always used when I was talking with youth back in the day mm-hmm. is I said, the reason why Michael Jordan looks like he looks on the on the court is because of the practice he did during the boring times. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's in there yeah. shooting basket after basket after basket. And you look at him and you go, when he goes into instinct mode, because I'll tell you, when you're watching these guys move so fast, mm-hmm. they're not looking at the basket. It's all instinct. <laughs> yeah. Their body is going into an instinctual mode and they're doing crazy things because their body is compensating to get that orange ball through that hoop. Mm-hmm. They're not practically thinking through it. They default back to their bodies just do what they practice to do. Yeah. And and I think that when we do not find it valuable to raise God or exalt him or magnify him in our minds, we will default to a small God. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Cuz it's all you so, have. It's right. all you have left. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Those those intense moments of life reveal our instincts, which is which is powerful and and you kind of alluded to this earlier. It's too late to yeah. build those instincts in in crisis. Yeah. Okay, so another uh, really fascinating uh, part of the book, um, Beneath Broken Machines, name of the book, in case you're just joining us, we're with PC Walker. Another really interesting part of the book, and, and as we're talking about an honest life of faith, you talked about this concept of being challenged. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm smiling and you're smiling. I don't know why you're smiling, but I can say why I'm smiling is because this is because, it's, I mean, it's just another kind of cliche in sort sure. of the Christian teaching world. I remember I had a... A professor, my youth ministry professor in seminary said, never use the phrase, I challenge you in front of students (laughs) because he called it rhetorical pointing, which I thought was an interesting, (laughs) interesting concept. So, so I don't like to rhetorically point, but we talk a lot about being challenged and I'm just going to quote you directly here Mm because, because this is interesting to me. We're kind of closing the book on, on talking about the importance of pain and how we deal with pain in in a life of faith. And I want to talk about kind of an openness to being challenged. You say this, you say, when we say we want to be challenged, we mean we want someone to blow our minds. We want someone to communicate something in a way we have never thought about it before. We want to think things more loftily than we, than we had before. We want to read books that really make us think and in doing so make us learn a lot. We want these things and we call it challenge, but we have misunderstood and forgotten the primary element to challenge. Very few of us really want to be challenged because being challenged means being called to the mat where you have to engage and change. Very few of us want to change anything as most of us are too comfortable to change. Why do we love this sort of theoretical blow your mind kind of challenge so much? And, and I'll admit, even, even as someone who resonates with this a lot, I... I love the idea of challenging other people. I sure. don't, I'm not as excited about being challenged myself. Right. Instinctually, we're talking about instinct. Mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. kind of have that natural catch where I say, oh, wait, I'm resisting this. Okay, why is that? Like, oh, it's because I'm being challenged. All right, come on, don't don't be a wuss. Just think about it. Right? Yeah. Why do we love this sort of brain candy kind of challenge so much? And then how do we, how do we get past uh, our resistance to real challenge? Yeah, well, I... 
the understanding then is that real cha- real challenge means that I have to change something. Um, I I have read books that are thick and dense and uh, and made me think for hours, but I could put it down and not change a thing about my life, not change a thing about how I relate to Jesus. And I've read books that I finished in an hour and walked away going, I've got to change some stuff. Um, and those would be the things that I think are, have been challenging to me. The books that made me walk away and go, man, I've got to change some things. If I really want to follow Jesus, if I really want to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is something that challenges me because I have to change. We resist that type of challenge because we are more comfortable with doing things where it's like, well, if you can just make me think about something and keep it all I can keep it all in my mind. And I know that we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, but big lofty thoughts are not necessarily renewal of anything. Um, it's just makes me know more than you do. Um, and again, then that's... Which is awesome, by the way. Yes. It's always <laughs> great that I know more than at least whoever I'm talking to. Uh, and then I can form, though, I can form those things. You know, like back in the day, it might have been called being fed. <laughs> uh, I, I remember hearing that one a lot. I just feel like I'm not being I'm fed. I'm not being fed here. I need to go somewhere else. Well, okay, good. You find another buffet. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> like that... But that was some of the words that we would use. And that was that thing of what, that's how we define maturity. That's how we define um, the way it looks to be a mature Christian is to just know more answers at all the right times. And none of that challenges me to live my life any differently than I did yesterday or a week ago or even years ago. I'm not changing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And challenge makes me sit in something and go, I have got to change this. I could read all the books in the world about every diet that's come through mm-hmm. and if and then say, I've been just really been challenged by these books. And then you look at me and go, <laughs> no, I don't know that you have. Have you really? <laughs> have you really challenged yourself at all? Uh, and that, I mean, that's how we... That's a perfect analogy. And, and that's how we play it out, though. That's how we play it out in, in our faith. I'll only go... Um, to a church with a pastor who makes me think about big things that I've never thought about. And that's great. We, we do have to love God with all of our mind. Um, but how much of that is making me change anything? Um, change is what implies an actual challenge that has been engaged. And, um, and you have to, you can look at the fruit and go, I don't know that you've challenged yourself. Um, yeah, but we, I it, it still control again too. I mean, I I can control what information I hear and what information I take in, and I get to control whether or not I'm actually willing to change anything about it. Yeah, Lance. Something I've heard you say before is that you suspect that a lot of times we come to church not looking to be changed, but to have what we already think reinforced. I think you've maybe even shared that in, ironically, maybe even shared that in a sermon before. Uh, <laughs> and and on some level, that's that's probably true. How do we live as people who are open, more open to healthy challenge in the way that PC is is describing? Because there's so many ways we can react to challenge that kind of are are that, that that allow us to not actually have to take stock of our lives, right? How do we live as people who are more open to healthy challenge, challenge that will cause us to step out from under the machine, challenge that will cause us to to become more like Jesus? How do we do that? 
Well, you know, tagging on to what you're saying, I, I think that there is um, a big blessing to hearing new thoughts. I'm an intellect, so I tend to learn that way, and that's my p- pathway to God. The problem is it's a blessing without a cost. Mm. You just get more stuff, and it didn't cost you anything. Yeah, There's a good. growth that only yeah. happens with cost, right? And we're avoiding the cost mm-hmm. every time, and so you're going to lose out on something. And so to answer your question, Bri, which is I think it's all about kingdom building. I think that if you are interested in building his kingdom, he's got to bring change to your kingdom. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you're building your kingdom, you only need to add, right? Um, Because you're looking for things that will add, not take away. Mm -hmm. Well, but whose kingdom are we really supposed to be building? I mean, it's (laughs) we're supposed to be building his kingdom. So I I think that the way that we come in has to do with something about humility, Mm -hmm. um, which is the idea of I'm here to receive from my king. Who's the real king who's sitting on the throne? Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm here to receive from my king, I'm going to expect as a servant he will require action on my behalf. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when I walk into his presence... Mm He will demand something of me, not because he's a jerk, because it's my job. Mm-hmm. It's my role. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think any servant walks into the king and he said, uh, can you get me my goblet, right? Because it has to be a goblet. <laughs> sure. Can you get me my uh, chalice? And the, the, the servant goes, why would you ask something of me? Nobody mm-hmm. asked that. It's your job. It's what you do. It's your mm-hmm. identity. So I think that when he's truly king, we're truly servant. And I think that when we operate in there, of course, change is required. Mm-hmm. Of course, action's required. That is you. That's who you are. You're supposed to change in light of who he is. John the Baptist said, we must decrease and he must increase. What that means, a decrease is an action item. It means something. You just lost something, Mm -hmm. uh, and he just gained something. Now, ultimately, it's going to bless you because you're supposed to be a jar of clay filled with him. But when we just want to be all about us, that feels like a loss that we don't want to give up. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that, uh, you know, PC, you mentioned being transformed by the renewing of your minds, uh, Mm -hmm. Romans 12, 2. There is a... There is a sense in which I think all of us resist really believing, like really honestly believing that our minds need renewing. Mm-hmm. Like, I like to joke sometimes. I think the way that I do, the, I think the way that I do because I think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I would change. Amen. <laughs> right? And like on some level, that sounds really arrogant. On the other level, it, it's just true. Yeah, I think it's absolutely. true for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, so, I've been saying that forever, <laughs> dude. That, that is so right. mean. So, so I, I, and I think that that's all, that's all well and good. But when we get to the, we have to get to the point where we say, I think I'm right, but I might not be. Sure. And, and, and I had an old seminary professor who joked at, you know, 20% of the stuff that I say is wrong. I just don't know what 20% it is. And <laughs> the idea of when I am confronted by the scriptures, when I'm confronted in church, when I'm confronted even in the world with, with ideas that are challenging to me, that I need to have the humility and then the discipline to, to just be open to the fact that maybe this is God trying to renew my mind a little bit mm-hmm. because you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is that renewal leading to transformation that to me is the difference between the book we read that we're like, man, that was interesting. I'm not going to do a dang thing with it. Or we're probably not usually that honest. We just don't mm-hmm. do anything with it. Right. Or, right. or the man, that was a great sermon. And it does not change our lives even a little bit. Yeah. It's the difference between that and then whether it's a small book, the big book, the teaching, the conversation that we say, gosh, you know, man, that that changed me. That caused mm-hmm. me to reevaluate mm-hmm. things. That caused me to be 
to be different. It was funny. I was I was at a at a workshop this last weekend, and I was commenting to the people that were there with me. I said, you know. I just wonder, this concept we were learning about, I said, I just wonder, is this going to be something where I say, oh, I read a book about it and, attend, and attended a workshop on it, and hey, you know, <laughs> that's interesting, I kind of know about it now, or is this going to be something that really changes my life? Yeah. And I said, even as we're walking away from this workshop, I'm sort of wondering, <laughs> I, I don't really know. Yeah. I, I think I have all the intention in the world mm-hmm. to let it be transformative, but but I don't really know. And, you know, and, and the fact is, that's a challenge. We never, you know, in the midst of, of life, how much transformation <laughs> do we have room for? Yeah. Um, but so much of a life of faith is being open to, okay, God, is this a transformative moment for me or not? Yeah, and I mean, I think to to decide, to have a clear picture of what is that change that you're looking for anyway. Um, I, I, for, I, you know, Psalm 73, I think it's 20, verse 28, the psalmist writes that closeness to God is my ultimate good. And that that sounds like something that I want. I want to be closer to the heart of Jesus than I am today. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I hope to be closer to Jesus. So if I'm challenging myself, um, and if in that challenge is I'm looking for stages of, of change that I need to take, I need to make steps that change. What is the change I'm actually trying to get at? There mm-hmm. has to be a goal for what is it that I, if I'm going to make a change, Toward what? Like, yeah. what am I trying to change? It's not just to change become? for change's sake. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, like for me, that would be maybe a question to put across. But you know, for me, that that change is I want I want to be closer to Jesus. But as a result of making this change, I want to look more like Jesus. As a result of this change, um, I want to be uh, closer to His heart um, than I was yesterday mm-hmm. by making some changes today. Yeah. And um, and that, those are the things that challenge me. Um, and some of those are intellectual. So I, I don't want it to sound like I am like downplaying thinking because yeah. <laughs> well, I also that, love to like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. It's thinking that stops at thinking. That's the problem. It's thinking right. leading to action yeah. is, is the good stuff. So, sure. all right, well, we're, we're about out of time and, and I want to, I want to, I want to give Lance kind of the, 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 the last transformative thought that is not just going to be brain candy, but is really mm-hmm. going to be something that creates lasting change in the lives of us and everyone who hears it. So no pressure, but before yeah, we, before, before, uh, before we do that, uh, PC, if folks want to find you, uh, online or, or anywhere else, where can they do that? Uh, my website is ragamuffinpc.com and you can find everything there. So if you just get there, my book is there. Um, my, all of the connection points of where I exist online, you can find me there and we can be friends. Excellent. Ragamuffinpc.com. The Mm -hmm. book, once again, is Beneath Broken Machines, Reviving Trust in the Heart of the Gospel. Would very much encourage you to to pick it up. I had a lot of fun reading it uh, these last few days and uh, caused me to think about a lot of stuff. I guess it remains to be seen if it, uh, you know, if if, if, if my heart (laughs) was open enough to really be be challenged. So, uh, Lance, to you. What do you got? Uh, yeah, just a couple quick things. One of them is when I read this book, it reflected me back to when I did a discipleship group. I would do discipleship groups every year, and I had required texts. Two of them were Jesus in the Margins by Rick McKinley, mm-hmm. uh, which it reminded me of because it's where Jesus goes to meet people that you always feel forgotten by society, and mm-hmm. that's where you're going to find Jesus. Is mm-hmm. He's not in the crowd, the obvious. Uh, the other one was Ava's Child by Brennan Manning, 
and um, who I got a chance to see at WJU uh, the year that he passed away. Me so too. I in went 2013, and got hot dogs with him right after. Man. Yes, and and I know that he's he's a big influence on your life. And yeah. so you guys, if you're out there and you're listening and you're a Brendan Manning fan, uh, you're really gonna appreciate PC Walker's book. Uh, beneath broken machines. Um, as a final thought, um, it, it's this that you guys uh, were talking about change and change and change, becoming like the image of Jesus. And I think that is all good and right. But I think the heart of PC Walker, I think the heart of Jesus Christ, is that He will love you even if you do not. Mm-hmm. If you never did one more thing, your God loves you total now. Amen. Amen. Great stuff. All right. Well, uh, PC, thanks so much for for being on the podcast with us today. Really enjoyed the enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Lance, thanks to you. As always, thanks to you, to li- the listener, for being with us. If uh, something we talked about struck you today, just really want to encourage you, get out, have a conversation with someone about it, wrestle through these issues together. So much of our transformation really takes place in community. So want to encourage you that if, again, if something, uh, something stuck out to you, have a conversation about it, get out and talk to folks and, and wrestle with these things together. So thanks for being with us. We'll be back with a new episode of Engaging Culture in two weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.